everybody. I'm Chris, co-host of the Marvelous Madams podcast. And I am TK, host of There Was an Idea, a Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast. And today, everyone, we are teaming up to discuss Sam Raimi's Spider-Man from, oh God, 2002. Yeah, when we were talking right before we started recording and you said this film is going to be 20 years old this May or June, whenever it came out, that is wild to think about. Yeah, I feel ancient. (laughs) Yes. So I had said at the end of my solo take on uh, Spider-Man No Way Home that I would be covering the whole Spider-Verse. And I'm thrilled to have uh, TK here to discuss Spider-Man with me. And I know there are going to be some people who are not very happy with me after this episode. I know a lot of you uh, revere and enjoy the Raimi movies, at least the first two. Uh, (laughs) Anybody who reveres Spider-Man 3, I'm sorry. We can't be friends. (laughs) But I want to make two things abundantly clear in my case for this episode. Number one, I am not going to mention Spider-Man No Way Home. I am not comparing this movie in any way to today's Marvel movies. That's not fair. And number two, I have no problem whatsoever with the VFX in this movie. I think all the visuals were of the time and honestly, I think good for the time. Yeah. Now, with that said, I personally think this movie is a uh, two-hour form of torture. (laughs) While I don't agree with that assessment, I do really appreciate how you just let that go. You did not hold back on that at all. (laughs) Always love the hot takes coming from you, Chris, on your show, Marvelous Matter. So I'm really excited to collaborate with you on this today. Yeah, I never learned how to mince words as a child. <laughs> it's fantastic. Too many people often do, right? Say say what you mean. <laughs> yeah, so before we dive in uh, to the movie as a whole, you know, since we both have listeners of all ages, I figured it might be a good idea to discuss our histories with this movie. Yeah. So uh, how did you come to it? Okay, so looking at the release date for... The movie. I realized I was in seventh grade at the time. So I was 13 years old. And this, I don't remember specifically the first time going to see it in the theater, but I know I saw it in the theater at least once. This is one of those movies that so many images from it have just remained implanted in my brain for throughout mm. my my time growing up. And it feels like something I've seen so many times. And while I can't pinpoint how many times I saw it at the theater versus how many times I saw it airing on cable television because I felt like it was a staple of cable TV, just like being in high school with my little TV in my bedroom and flipping channels and like they're Spider-Man again. And um, I was just showing you, you can't see it since podcasting is an audio medium, but I have the (laughs) DVD that was also a staple in my, in my home And this is the full screen special edition, which is so funny for me to think of now. Like, why did we buy this in full screen? I don't know if it was my parents (laughs) or my brother or what, but it's got two discs to it. And I was shocked. I fired this up last night in preparation for recording this today. I the most recent time prior to this that I had watched Spider-Man was back in October, thinking about No Way Home coming out soon and wanting to revisit the character and you know, right. his various portrayals in live action. And at that time, I didn't watch the DVD, but I brought out the DVD last night, watched some of it with the director's commentary on it, which was really interesting. And I did not watch all of these features. I think it would take forever to watch all of these features. There is so much on it. 
including uh, the the Chad Kroger music video <laughs> and um, just there's... oh my god <laughs> oh I forgot about that oh the dark times the dark times of Nickelback yes it's uh, Nickelback was of the moment uh, at, during this time and uh, yeah there's there's tons of stuff on here documentaries and stuff related to the comics and uh, featurettes Rogues Gallery the loves of Peter Parker comic book artist gallery. Uh, hints and tips about the Activision game that was popular at this time. So it, it is really, really, really interesting. So anyway, all of that to say that this is something that has just been around for me in, in my life. Always there, always part of the backdrop. And I mentioned this on, on the Spider-Man episode that I did with my guest Trey, that for me, seeing Spider-Man in 2002 was very much my entry into this type of ongoing storytelling where a franchise storytelling essentially right where you have these flagship characters and you look forward to the next one coming out because i had seen the x-men films but i wasn't quite aware of that aspect of it i i think the other one to compare it to would be star wars because i had seen you know the original star wars as a kid and then phantom menace came out but i was a little bit younger for that so and i loved batman as a kid as well Batman, sure. Batman Forever was my favorite movie, like as a child. But <laughs> yes, which is why I still have some affection for it to this day, because I loved that movie as a little kid. I was probably too young to be watching it. But again, I, I totally, uh, I totally understand that. Good. because Young Krista had some definite feelings about Mr. Val Kilmer. <laughs> there you go. OK, perfect. So you get it. Um, but yeah, I, I think for me, it was a little bit more Nicole Kidman. But still, it was the same kind of thing. But it's I recently rewatched that movie, too. And it it, while it doesn't hold up, it does hold up for me just because it's so many memories attached to that. Um, but regardless, like, so I, I was a fan of superhero things I had seen before, but this was the first time that I was aware of it being a thing, like going to the theater and looking at the release dates and thinking, oh man, the next one doesn't come out until 2004. That's so far away. Like, you know, like being excited for it. So it's definitely something that while, as as you said, and I appreciate you know, we're not here to compare the quality of this to the MCU or to the latest Spider-Man release. Um, it's something looking back on it now that I think does very much need to be evaluated on its own terms and of its time. Yeah. So I come to this uh, pretty much the opposite of you, where I know I saw this as a teenager. I don't know about the theaters. I was very sick at the time. Uh, so memory's also a little hazy in there. But just to date ourselves a little bit more, I definitely remember the wall of DVDs at West Coast Video. Oh, yeah. After this came out. And I think it was like an FX staple when yes. it comes to cable, if I remember correctly. That's it. And I remember having a general awareness of it, seeing it, but I don't recall having any feelings about it. Can't forget, though, that that 2002 MTV Best Kiss winner, can we? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Of course, yeah. But I will say, now that you have reminded me of that video, I feel this movie deserved Nickelback. <laughs> that's all That's all you're going to get. Nickelback, they're not the heroes that this movie deserves, but it's what it's going to get. <laughs> so overall, before we dive into the meat here, my two biggest problems with this movie are pretty big problems. Uh, namely, the script in its entirety. I... <laughs> Do not understand, and I have asked this question before about other movies, I do not understand how David Kep, the man who wrote Jurassic Park, also wrote this movie. <laughs> Does not compute in my mind. And 
My other big problem with this, and for those of you who love and enjoy him, I'm sorry, I can't help it. <laughs> it's Toby Maguire. What is it about Toby that is uh, grating to you? Well, we'll get into that as we go. Okay. Um, I would not have cast him in this role. He was a big commodity at the time, though. I do remember that. Mm -hmm. um, wasn't much of a fan of his. I'm still not. Um, oh, you know, I'm wrong. Three major problems. We'll get into MJ, won't we? Sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A lot of the MJ stuff didn't age well. Yeah. And I think uh, overall, and I will uh, document this as we go along, instead of Spider-Man, I think this movie probably should have been called Spider-Bitch because <laughs> this entire movie, Peter Parker is just such a little bitch. And I <laughs> reserve that term for very specific situations. And this is one of them. I can't wait to hear more about uh, the moments that, that stand out for you on that front. Yeah. All right. So let's dive into this movie, starting with these opening credits. Do you get nostalgic when you hear this soundtrack? I do. For me, I do. It, it's that feeling of opening credits that are given their due, right? It's a few minutes on screen of just the names and the illustrations. And it gave me very Batman Forever vibes. And it, it's Danny Elfman is the composer of the music. So it, that makes sense there. And I, one of the things that I, I listened to part of the director's commentary, this most recent time I rewatched the film. And one of the things they actually said that I thought was interesting about the opening credits is that some of the illustrations that they included in those very kind of fast moving images are uh, illustrations of the Spider-Man suit. And one of the things that Sam Raimi says is that he intentionally didn't want to reveal Spider-Man, the look of Spider-Man too early on in the movie because it was the origin story and he wanted to build up to that, but that he wanted to give sure. audiences a little bit of a peek or a little bit of a taste of, of what that Spider-Man design was going to be. So they built that into the credits. I thought that was interesting. I didn't know that before. Yeah, I, I think that's perfectly fine. Yeah. So it's interesting with the score that it made you think of Batman Forever. It actually made me think of Batman 1989. Yes. Original Batman. Yeah. Um, because Elfman didn't score Batman Forever, but he did score 89 and Returns. Right. And that's what actually caused a bit of a problem for me. Because when I hear Danny Elfman, I think Tim Burton. Mm. The two of them are a pair. They yes. go together. So I hear that music and I'm in Tim Burton mode. So what happened to me with Spider-Man, because it has been probably 15 years since I've seen the movie, at least. Wow. You know how when we were kids in the 90s and, you know, restaurants still served kids milk at <laughs> breakfast? Yes. And they gave you a glass of orange juice, too. And you'd be sitting there chatting, color and do whatever. And you went to grab one thinking it was orange juice and you got milk instead. And you're like, oh, that doesn't taste right. That's kind of what watching this movie became like for me. So I've never been much of a fan of Batman 89, but after rewatching the Raimi movies, I actually have a new appreciation for it. So I'm going to kind of compare this to Batman 89 to explain why I can't get into this movie. So the most important thing I think Tim Burton did in Batman was creating a purely fantasy comic book world. Gotham City 
Burton's Gotham City is not our world in any way. It's kind of hard to tell at times, aside from like the Amex product placement, when that movie even takes place because it's such a different world. So like all the campiness in there, it totally works because we've been taken out of our own universe. But with Spider-Man, Raimi set this movie in our world. So all the campiness doesn't work for me. There's so much more suspension of disbelief required. And the other thing is that Burton went 100% in on the campiness. And I think Raimi only went like 60%. So you got to be all or nothing with the camp. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting observation. I think that you are pointing to something that I was kind of wrestling with when rewatching the film again, too, which is that this moment in 2002 was very much before the time of our hyper-realistic, dark and gritty superhero movie like The Dark Knight. It was before even something like Iron Man, which very much sets out to not be campy and very much sets out to be part of our real world. And yet it's not quite as fantasy as as those earlier Batman films. So what we end up with in Spider-Man 2002 is kind of this like, it's sort of straddling the real world and the comic book brought to life on the screen in a purely fantasy way. I think, you know, you mentioned the script earlier, and I think that the parts of the script that really lean into the corny comic book, like, you've spun your last web, Spider-Man, and like that kind of stuff, um, <laughs> is I, that works for me in a purely like, this is funny way. Uh, a lot of the transitions in the film, like some of the screen wipes and superimposing like Toby putting the Spider-Man mask on with the headlines behind him, that kind of stuff, I think, is more of what you're saying of like, let's just lean into it and make this a comic Mm -hmm. book. But I think what you're pointing out is really interesting that it almost does, it doesn't necessarily do that enough, right? Because then you also have moments where this is really supposed to feel like New York. So there's something a little bit lost there. That's really interesting. Oh, does it ever feel like New York, doesn't it? (laughs) A little over the top. Well, one of the things for me, too, I, I, I guess it, it this is as good a moment as any to bring this point up, which to me watching this, especially in the moment of 2002, like it feels very much like our first foray into a post 9-11 superhero movie world. And I think that most of this movie was in production before that you know, tragic event took place. And in fact, I think yes. famously, there's there's some stories about how they cut out certain images of the Twin Towers in the film and in the marketing. So it's kind of that last moment where most of it was was done before that historical moment. But then you can see the way that that moment impacts it. At, you know, the moment later in the film where there's the New Yorkers who are saying like, you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us, right? You mess with New York and like Spider-Man swinging with the American flag at the end. That feels very much of that moment. And then I think mm-hmm. with with some time, our superhero uh, storytelling in popular media began to change to be much more dark and less of that fantasy world. So it's it's kind of a really interesting transition moment, I think, Spider-Man 20, uh, 2002. That's a good point. Yeah. Now... Are you sure you're ready to cover this movie? The story of Peter's life is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> God, uh, David kept 
this movie what's so frustrating is that this movie is is chock full of cliched hackney writing but there are times where i go god damn that's a great line why can't we have more of this type of writing in this movie and i will point out those instances yeah, I mean, I I love so the point that you just mentioned the not for the faint of heart, right? If somebody said it was a happy little tale, right? Like it's it's so melodramatic, um, but but as much as that's melodramatic, I'm laughing at it. I do like the framing of the narration and starting off with him asking who am I, and then ending the film with saying who am I, right? That's very much speaks to superhero origin story, hero's journey. We know what we're going to get. This is the blueprint of that type of storytelling. And that that aspect of it works for me. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Usually I'm not a fan of voiceover at mm. the beginning of movies, but it worked for this. So we start off here with an image that we will see so many times in this movie, in this franchise, Peter Parker being made a fool of. We're chasing down this bus the bus that is full of every early 2000s teen stereotype you could think of. <laughs> it's the old trope, not being able to find a seat on the bus. And what we're basically being told here is, well, Peter Parker just isn't the most popular guy in the world, is he? My my first thought watching it again when I watched this in October, which was the first time in a while that I had seen it like as an adult, as a podcaster, I my, my biggest thought was they were, they're calling him so lame and all these things like, is he believably lame? Is Tobey Maguire in, in 2002 believably lame? It's a big problem because they just go so heavy. They don't miss an opportunity to show us what a loser he is. I mean, when they get in front of the museum and he thinks MJ is waving to him and it's her <laughs> friends, oh, cringe city. Yeah, very much so. And it's, listen, it's, what I appreciated it on this most recent watch is that in terms of thinking about the the archetypal hero's journey, this establishment of his ordinary world, right? They go hard on establishing who he is, what his role is among his peers, and they introduce Mary Jane and the other students at the school in this way that it doesn't take too long to do it. And so I appreciate that. I feel like at the beginning, it's kind of like, okay, Let's show us in quick succession a few images of him being a total lame kid who's getting made fun of. Okay, we get it. Um, so in terms of, of that aspect of establishing the world that he is part of, they definitely hit the nail over the head a few times. Yeah, you're right about that. And I hadn't thought of it that way. Uh, so my issue with him throughout the movie will be him just constantly taking one type of beating after another, whether physical, mental, emotional, and just doing nothing about it. So that's where, obviously, the movie wants us to have sympathy for him, but I can just never get there. Mm. So here's a question for you. Who is a bigger asshole, James Franco or Harry Osborne? <laughs> you know, it's so interesting to go back and watch these movies now with the knowledge of of everything that has that has happened with James Franco as a real person in the world because at the time he was very much like an an it boy of the moment. And the biggest thing that struck me looking back on it now is that I I, I wasn't really taken with with Franco as Osborne at all and I I feel like I remember as a teenager like everybody you know either thinking he was very cute or just like a really I I remember thinking he was like a really interesting character right because he goes through this loss of his father and then you know we know what happens in the second in the sequel um but then re-watching it I was just kind of like oh 
not I was not really captivated by Harry Osborne or his story very much at all. No, yeah. no, he's the worst. He's <laughs> the worst being played by the worst. Honestly, the only time I've seen James Franco give a good performance is when he's basically playing himself. Mm. I don't even remember other is... James Franco performances at this point. <laughs> yeah, I think he is one of the most overrated was one of the most overrated people in Hollywood as his star has fallen, which yes. it damn well should. Yeah. I think he is, aside from the writing, the worst thing about these movies. And not only him as an actor, just not pulling any of this off, Harry is a shitty character in so many ways. And this is where, from the beginning for me, there are just so many inconsistencies with this script and the characters. You know, looking at this now with my adult eyes, with a more analytical lens, I look at this and I'm like, no, 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 this doesn't happen. I don't care how many fights you caused or chest or, or tests you cheated on in your private schools. A super rich white kid in the early 2000s, he doesn't end up in public school. No, not happening. Money talks and uh, so does white privilege. And his father is something of a scientist, I've heard. <laughs> let me tell you so i watched this with my husband who was sitting next to me on the couch and this was the first of many moments where he was thoroughly enjoying himself and just yelled out meme oh yes many many memeable moments <laughs> which is also part of why when i'm talking about how this movie and the images from this movie are so much i feel like just a part of the backdrop of what I know as a consumer of superhero movies and just movies in general. Uh, I think a lot of that is to do with reaction gifs and memes for sure. Absolutely. Just last night, I saw my husband scrolling Reddit, the Giants fan board. Yes, guys, you know, I'm from Jersey. Yes, we are long suffering Giants fans. And he saw a <laughs> meme that showed like different types of eyes after different things. And it showed uh, after a child's loss, and it was Toby Maguire's crying face. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yep. <laughs> this is our introduction to Harry and his father, Norman Osborne, who is clearly impressed by Peter and his brain right away. Which works in terms of, again, I feel like a lot of this establishing the ordinary world, they use a lot of shorthand here to just sort of say, this is the girl he has a crush on. This is his best friend who is kind of set up to be a foil to him. And this is going to be the this is going to be the villain, right? It's pretty it's pretty choreographed right away, right? Because here's this older guy in a position of power who is, sees something of himself in Peter a little bit, and that is kind of your classic comic book setup. Sure. The big issue for me though on this part comes down to depth and like showing versus telling. Yeah. We never see Peter use his brain in any capacity in this movie. We never see him be a student be a scientist, nothing. We never see anyone be a student yeah. in this movie. That's a great point. I hadn't even really thought of it that way. That's that's a really good point. They are very much telling us more than showing us. We're here on this field trip to some laboratory. And man, this is the part where I have trouble because yeah, I'm going to be the cliche girl. I'm going to be the MJ here. I fucking hate spiders. <laughs> Although I handle this a little bit better than I handle the tarantula in Home Alone. Oh, the tarantula in Home Alone is a, yeah, as far as movie spiders go, that's a, that's a big standout. 
I heard yeah. on the commentary track, they were saying that for the, the spider that they show on screen, the spider that bites him, they actually, there were some scenes, much of it was CGI, some of it was CGI, but some of it was also a real spider who they outfitted in with a little jacket of sorts, I guess. I forget the term they used. They painted this little thing and like put it on on a Black Widow spider. Nope, nope, <laughs> nope, 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 nope. So, so we just mentioned the students here. Now's a good time to mention the other problem, besides the fact that we never actually see them in class. There is not a single age-appropriate actor in this movie. No, it's glaring watching it now. Yeah, and you know, I understand that child labor laws make using real <laughs> teens a bit more difficult to work with, but um, lots of movies and shows pull it off, and it's fairly necessary when you're making a movie about high school students. Yeah, and it's crucial to Peter's story in this part, right? That he is a kid, and uh, and I actually don't think that Toby is the worst offender in terms of the casting, uh, in 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 that respect of, of how he. I looks. agree. Uh, but uh, what's that actor's name? Joe Manganiello, the one who plays Flash Thompson. Oh, yeah, Joe Manganiello <laughs> yeah. is a huge problem, literally, because he's a <laughs> fucking redwood tree. Yeah, he definitely doesn't. Great actor, but definitely doesn't doesn't fit in here. No. So that just made it even harder for me to connect and take anything about this movie seriously because it just takes me out of the movie every time. Yeah. Tobey Maguire is 27. Manganiello's 25. Kirsten Dunst is also in her mid mid to late 20s. Like, And then we also have, on the other end of it, we have Aunt May and Uncle Ben who are also 20 years older than they should be. Yes. Yes. Very much feeling like and and again wonderful actors and i do i do like the portrayal of aunt may and uncle ben in this movie but they seem more like his grandparents than an aunt and uncle right yeah and like you said nothing against cliff robertson and rosemary harris two legendary actors they were good in this movie Mm -hmm. for what they were asked to do but the problem is what they were asked to do yeah very one-dimensional as as you said before Oh, God, yes, especially May. Oh, we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. So we're going through the laboratory. And, of course, this is where Mr. Parker, after some more cringy moments with his camera, yeah, gets uh, bitten by the radioactive spider. Yes. So this was one of the things that I, I thought was interesting that they commented on in the director's commentary as well, that they didn't go with the comics radioactive spider and they instead went with like a more modern genetically enhanced and right you're right what was kind of you know in terms of storytelling perspective what this scene allows them to do is because the students are learning about the spiders you you get the lecture on what spider-man's abilities are going to be before he even has them so it kind of allows you to be like, oh, okay, he's going to be able to jump and catch his prey. And, you know, there are the different strengths that, that he's going to have. So it's, that's kind of an interesting, uh, interesting way that they did it. Again, as I said, I, one of the things I think is, I'd be curious to hear your take on it, but one of the things I think the film does well is the pacing for the most part, especially early on. It kind of gets us through some of the necessary exposition. Uh, as you said, at the expense of depth, but in terms of kind of laying out, here's who everybody is. Here's what the powers are going to be. Cool. You got it. Let's go. <laughs> that is a really good point. I hadn't thought of it that way 
probably because I have so much trouble with the passage of time yeah. in this movie. Sure. It's, a, it's a problem. But you are right about that. I can't disagree. Uh, but overall, I think the moral of this movie, and I have a feeling that uh, you will back this 100%, teachers aren't paid nearly enough to deal <laughs> with these asshole teenagers. I've been there. Yeah, I've I've had those feelings before. <laughs> <laughs> haven't taken well, haven't taken students on field trips in a couple of years unfortunately due to the state of everything going on. But uh but uh haven't haven't had this opportunity to, to I think it, it's a uh, I think within the narrative it's supposed to be Columbia University as well. It the, they commented on it in the commentary track that they are filming that they filmed it at Columbia University. Um, which is nice. Sense. Yeah. Hey, they're going to school in the city. Why not? Why not get out there a little bit and do some real world learning? But uh, as you said, I don't think these students are appreciating that enough. <laughs> yeah. All of the students who, who are each like a full head over their teacher. Yep. <laughs> so we leave the kitties here and head over to Oscorp where the trial of Norman's experiment with what I'm just going to call goblin juice there hasn't gone all that well. No, it hasn't. Uh, side effects might include violence, aggression, and insanity. So, ah, that's not a big deal. <laughs> and what I'm wondering, maybe you can help me out here. Maybe I missed something, but I feel like this whole goblin juice and glider experiment, the purpose of it, like, it's so vague. Like, what's this program for? What's the end game? What, what's happening? Yeah, I don't know. I. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm not crazy. <laughs> no, I, I think it was very much, again, kind of using that shorthand, that very sort of comic booky. Uh, here's this person who is not inherently evil. Like Norman Osborne is not mustache twirling, but he wants power, right? He wants influence. He's he's a little bit too ambitious. And so something is going to go wrong. Uh, in terms of what the, this report that he asks for about the performance enhancers, what the purpose is, I, I'm trying to think if I ever, if I ever knew, because <laughs> it's not military purpose, right? It's the military who gets access to it later, but that wasn't the goal. Was the goal just to do it for the sake of doing it, like science for the sake of science? I don't know, because there is some sort of generic military officer, old white guy there. There's, There's talk the general, about an right. exoskeleton. Yeah, there's talk about an exoskeleton, but it just is so nebulous. Yeah. It never really goes anywhere. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that that's, and I know we said we weren't going to do this, but I think that that's something that in the more recent MCU films, like they would do more to kind of flesh out uh, what that real purpose was. Yeah. And that's the frustrating thing is that these little explanations, these little bits of exposition didn't have to take long. Like you said yourself, they actually did a good job with quick exposition and it would have taken a line or two. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I feel like there was just a lot of laziness throughout this script. Maybe it's an assumption that the audience, like some of the audience has a familiarity with comic books and is interested in that type of storytelling where, you know, not, not that, I mean, there are very many very good comic books that establish uh, real depth. So I'm, I'm by no means trying to suggest that, oh, it's a comic book story, therefore it's not going to get into that. Um, but a, a certain type of archetypal story, maybe they were just accept like expecting that the audience was going to be like, okay, cool. Greedy scientist, something's going to go wrong. You know, we don't need any more than that. And, you know, that's that's fair at the time. I mean, obviously this movie was incredibly successful and spoke to a lot of people. 
And kind yeah, of, this movie was huge. Yeah, and it, it, you know what? And in that way, it sort of set up, it set up the template, and it set up the rules that were going to be broken later, uh, in 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 these types of comic book story. Uh, Interesting way to put it. I like that. So Peter has this uh, disgusting looking bite. It kind of reminds me of what I used to look like back in San Antonio when I get fire ant bites. Ooh. And uh, he's not feeling so great. So sorry, Uncle Ben. Sorry, Aunt May. Gotta go straight up to bed. And this is just honestly some teenage boy stupidity right here. Because any any girl would have gone like straight to an urgent care. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or at least been like, been like, Aunt May, Uncle Ben, something's wrong. Take a look at this shit. <laughs> I'd like to think that I would have done that uh, if, it, if it were me. <laughs> But yeah, I they they certainly don't push him either, and I and I I get that. I mean, they are they're yeah. an aunt and uncle. They're not necessarily they're they're not his parents, even though they're his parents' figures. So maybe they want to give him a little bit of space to do what he needs to do. But um, yeah, I'll get into that relationship yeah. in a little bit <laughs> in a little bit too because got some issues there. So back over at Oscorp, we have you know the typical scientist duel here going on between. Norman and Dr. Strom. And of course, this guy is right. Norman should not be going through with this experiment. No, no, he really shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I don't think pre Goblin Juice, I don't think Norman Osborn was a bad guy. No. But I also don't think he was as good of a guy as, say, Otto Octavius. Yeah, I, I, that makes sense to me. That rings true. I think that he, Obviously doesn't mean any evil here, but I think he has a little bit of that kind of uh, willingness to do whatever needs to be done to do his science and make his profit and uh, to to satisfy those ambitions that he has. Yes, clearly neither of us is a scientist. Right. In any way, shape, or form. <laughs> do his science things. There it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's got tunnel vision, absolutely, because he's also worried about uh, his legacy, his company. He right. is a selfish bastard, if nothing else. Yeah, yeah. Well, he doesn't he doesn't want to lose his his company, uh, and he doesn't want to lose his, I guess, intellectual property, right? Like related to what his creations are. Uh, if he loses the contract that he has with whatever the other company is, uh, <laughs> yeah. this is not the most, this is not the aspect of the film I've spent the most time thinking about, but I will say this, uh, watching it this most recent time, what I appreciated was like, we're seeing this scene here where he is arguing like, no, we have to do this. I'm going to do this. Uh, juxtaposed to the scene of Peter changing and Peter's body changing and Peter not feeling well. And so I thought, that that was well done. Like, okay, we, we see the hero and the villain kind of going through these changes at the same time. Now, of course, later in the movie, they hit this over the head a little bit too much when he says the very comic book line, you and I, we're not so different. Or whatever it is. Um, but again, right, this setting up our template of, of bringing a comic book to, to the screen, we very much see that connection between hero and villain here. When Norman drinks the goblin juice and then throws the glass to the ground, I couldn't help but yell, another! <laughs> yeah, oh, nice. <laughs> That's great. But you know what? As much as I think Willem Dafoe is the best thing in this movie, oh, God, I don't need to see him shirtless. He already <laughs> creeps me out. 
And when he does that, like, ah, the, the stance there, I'm like, oh, God, I'm going to have nightmares. He is really, really good at being creepy. He is. And <laughs> I mean, when you're born with that face, what are you going to do? You know, lean in. <laughs> and that's what he's done his whole career. He's not a bad looking man. He's kind of like Benedict Cumberbatch, where you're like, I don't know how I feel about that face. Well, it's striking, right? It leaves it an impact on you. And um, to some people, they, that that might be very attractive. To other people, that might be very much the opposite of attractive. But it's certainly something yep. that like, you can really, really work that whichever angle you want to as an actor. Yeah, you're totally right. And I find myself feeling sorry for, not Norman, but feeling sorry for Willem Dafoe because he's better than this movie. The movie is beneath him. He's very, very good. And I think that he, part of why some of the the corniness of of some of those lines are okay with me in this movie are because the way he delivers them are like, he. I think he understands the assignment, right? Like this is, I'm going to be that kind of cackling, you know, comic book uh, bad guy. You're totally right. He knew exactly what this character did, was. And so did J.K. Simmons. Unfortunately, yeah. they were the only ones who knew. Nobody else got the memo. Yeah, I think I think it goes back to what you were saying about that disconnect between are we fully in that fantasy world, that cartoon world that, that J.K. Simmons and, and Willem Dafoe are acting in, or are we doing something a little bit more grounded? And I think the casting of people like Toby and Kirsten Dunst and James Franco was meant to kind of ground it a little bit more, make it a little bit more relatable, but there ends up being a disconnect. So uh, Dr. Osborne here, he has his little seizure, he wakes up, and it is full goblin taken over, and he murders Dr. Strom. <laughs> yes, yes, he did. Um, I, this is, again, I so far, right, what's been laid out in the movie has been very simple, but I looked at the timestamp around this time when Peter... You know, Peter goes up to his room and then Osborne is going through his changes in, in the machine. This is only about 15 minutes into the movie. And I feel like mm -hmm. that's kind of um, I like that. Right. OK, like we've spent our 15 minutes. It, it, it Thinking back on it, I feel like I remember this part of the film being longer, like when I was a kid watching this. But they really do it very quickly. Yeah. And that's a, that's points for it. For yeah. sure. You're right. So like you said, we have the juxtaposition here because Peter is now waking up uh, with superpowers and a new body. One of those images that really stands out when I'm like, there's certain images implanted in my brain, like Tobey Maguire looking in the mirror and taking the, gla like, the glasses on and off. Yeah. And, you know, I guess one of the reasons this movie didn't resonate with me like it did for uh, a lot of other teenage girls that I knew, I was always kind of an outlier. Uh, to borrow a phrase, uh, from my dear co-host Amy, who will be back soon, everyone. Uh, I have never been able to view Toby Maguire <laughs> as a sexual being. <laughs> yeah, he was never he was never um, somebody who I looked at in that way either. I, I've always been very very neutral on Toby Maguire in in all respects. I I neither adored him uh, or 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 looked at him as a as a crush symbol, but I also Never disliked him, and that, that's kind of kind of true to this day. I'm very very neutral on him. I, I appreciate the role that he played here for its impact on 
superhero movies. That is very diplomatic of you, Switzerland. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, always been always been very neutral on Toby. So here's another question for the scene. Does anyone in movies or TV ever have blinds? Ever? (laughs) (laughs) I know. I know. But this starts some more problems for me in the the script and in the relationship with Peter and MJ. It's all so jumbled. So Mm -hmm. we're going to find out that they've known each other or they've lived next door to each other since they were six. And that's how long that Aunt May and Uncle Ben have had Peter. They have raised him. So they've been next door neighbors this whole time who are so close in this Queens neighborhood that they could reach across the bedroom and touch each other. But in some parts of the movie, it appears that they have never spoken to each other in their lives. Yeah, that aspect is really confusing. Like, there's the the cute story that Aunt May tells later, like, oh, he saw her and said, is that an angel and all of these things. But right there, they're so they are. They live basically on top of each other. But then there's yeah. the scenes where he's rehearsing talking to her. Uh, and those scenes make it feel like he just has never that they're not even friendly acquaintances. Right. And then, you know, I'll point it out later. We have inconsistencies where we see. We see them speaking like they're old friends. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. There's also this aspect here, too. We get a glimpse into MJ's home life, which certainly seems to be uh, abusive. And we, I, I think the film makes a little bit of an effort to create some depth for MJ, but I don't think it lands for, for me personally. I, I, I think, again, they're with their limited time uh, in exploring a, a side character here uh, or exploring his love interest, they, they give a few glimpses into, okay, look, like we see she has a troubled past. We see that these are her aspirations. Here's what's holding her back. But it, it just doesn't, I'm struggling to explain what doesn't work about it for me, but I, I some of it I think is just, it's just too little. It's, it's, it's too surface level. And, and you can't help but think about some of the other, movies that we've seen, other superhero movies we've seen more recently that do a wonderful job with limited time of establishing side characters who really feel like real fleshed out people and not just an object of desire for a hero. Yep, I agree. So before the kiddos head to school, we gotta go see Norman, who Harry finds on the floor of their apartment. And geez, seems like he had a little bit of a blackout. Yeah. I do love the scenes in their home. The the home is very beautiful. Yes, it's very New York rich, isn't it? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, so he's horrified here, genuinely, because at this point, he's still going back and forth between Norman and the Goblin. He genuinely has no idea about this murder and um, is stricken by it. Yeah. So now it's time to get to uh, lunch here, where, of course, because he's you know, the president of Lutherville, uh, Peter is sitting alone, eating his lunch. And this is where we get our first glimpse at uh, some of his new powers, his reflexes here, when we have what I'll call MJ save number one. Yep. <laughs> this time from some spilled orange juice or something like this. The lunch tray moment is, it's, it is iconic. Yes. And like you said, this is where he can't even talk to her. Yeah. He just stares. And this is the part where I wonder, and maybe you can answer this since you watched the commentary track, did Sam Raimi 
say at any point that he told Tobey Maguire to play this part like Peter Parker was an alien because (laughs) he doesn't seem to know how to have a normal interaction with anyone. (laughs) You know, if he said that on the commentary track, then I missed that part. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I definitely think that they're trying to establish just how socially isolated he is. They're trying to lend some credibility to his being an outcast, but it's, you know, and as somebody who works in a high school and has for many years, there, sure, there, there are students who go through experiences where they're socially isolated. And there are students who sometimes choose to eat alone and feel totally okay about that. Um, but there's sure. also a really a reality to, you know, kids finding their their niche. And um, it, it's just tough to believe when you're watching it that 25-year-old Tobey Maguire has nobody to talk to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just too much. Yeah. And so this here's where we get the fight with uh, Flash Thompson, this whole scene. And so we mentioned, you know, Joe Manginello, his age alone, but he's six and a half feet tall. Like, yeah. come on. But also, the whole character of Flash doesn't make sense in this world. It's a similar problem to Harry Osborne. If your parents can afford to get you a crazy expensive car when you're 18, you're not going to a public school in working class Queens. Well, and actually, that's where that's a God. really good question because in. The MCU trilogy, they've established Midtown High as kind of like a, a very prestigious public school, like something like like, like yes. Bronx Science or something like that, where like a lot of students. Yeah, be something like, you have to apply to. Yeah. But I guess in this world, they don't they don't really explain Midtown High at all. Right. Do they give no. any mention to it being? Yeah. Nothing. Great point. It looks like just a regular old public high school. Yeah. Yeah. Really good point. And, you know, added to it. I feel like MJ being Flash's girlfriend doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense either. No. You know, you mentioned the little bit of depth they try to give her with her family background. And, you know, maybe this is uh, the sociology major coming out in me, but the abused girl from the clearly poor family, she doesn't belong in this clique of rich kids with Flash and these other girls. It's incongruous. And it really is a lot more likely that she would have bonded with Peter over the years. Yeah, that's great. The non threatening male right next door who cares about her, who she could talk to at night through her window. Yeah, that's a really good point. I had not even thought of it like that, right? I, I think, and I don't think that a lot of thought was given to that. I think it was very much like MJ is the girl that Peter desires. Therefore, MJ is going to be attached to the boy who represents everything that Peter is not. So she's going to be dating Mm -hmm. the bully because that is going to emphasize just how little Peter has. And then later she's going to date the best friend. Right. Um, So that contributes to MJ not really feeling like a real person and being used more as as part of Mm -hmm. the storytelling device. Yeah, and you're right there. Flash is absolutely a bully. He's the biff of this high school. And that's why, like, this is the one part where Peter stands up for himself, and it gets ruined for me. Because Flash absolutely deserved this. He had it coming. There's no way Peter's the only kid that he's tormented. No question. But it gets ruined by everybody turning on Peter 
instead. Like, no, no, nobody feels sorry for Biff when George McFly knocks him out. (laughs) Yeah, that's a really great point. And this scene looks really cool. I'll say that. I think that the fight scene looks really good. And the way that they shot um, us as, as an audience kind of learning about his spider senses in the hallway and the scene where he's he's kind of like leaned back and we see the shot from his POV, like looking up at MJ and the other kids. So yeah. I, I really like this scene in terms of what it does visually and, and how we see some of Peter's um, emerging powers in action. And we see that he has the web shooter, shooter, you know, literally coming out of his wrists and all of that stuff. So I... I like that aspect of it. Um, and I think as you point out, in terms of some of the plotting, it really doesn't <laughs> make sense. Yeah, you're right. It does look really cool. It's yeah. very, um, I would say, because this is 2002, very Matrix-inspired wire yeah. work. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you mentioned the webs. That is the one genuine laugh I have in this movie when I'm laughing with Peter and not at him when he's trying to figure out how the web shooters. Yeah, right. that's fine. yeah. <laughs> Go web, yeah, <laughs> Shazam. <laughs> that was that was cute. They they said on the commentary track that he improvised some of that. So, okay, that makes sense. And you know, I know New Yorkers are jaded. Yes, <laughs> but please, come on. Even New Yorkers are going to look up and notice a guy who's swinging like ten feet off the ground and screaming bloody murder in the <laughs> middle of a pedestrian sidewalk. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> Again, that's our our uh, incongruity with the fantasy world and the groundedness of of the real world coming in there. But I do I do genuinely like you know thinking of this as an origin story on its own terms, right? I do like the fact that we're seeing these moments of learning for Peter, of confusion for Peter, right? It's a very origin story that he's he's figuring it out and we're learning along with him, you know, what his what his new powers are. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And I will say again, women would be smarter about this. I'm sure Spider-Gwen <laughs> was much smarter about this. Start maybe swinging over a trampoline or a net. Let's start a little smaller where we're not risking our life. <laughs> That's a fair point. But as Tony Stark said, sometimes you got to run before you can walk. So, <laughs> oh, that idiot. Yep. <laughs> and nearly freeze to death in the process. That's true. <laughs> so uh, because he's out Spider-Manning all over the place, Peter gets home a little late, disappointing uh Uncle Ben, and he overhears MJ's family having one of their uh, nightly screaming matches. Yeah, and I think th- this is a conversation between MJ and Peter that I think is is necessary. This is a moment that they're actually connecting. I was struck by some of that disconnect that you were mentioning before, that sometimes they relate to one another as if they actually know each other, and then sometimes they don't. But I, this was interesting because I feel like the pace of the movie was necessarily quick i think up to this point and then i was struck by now this conversation between mj and peter feels like it's kind of taking its time um and it feels like a lot of it it feels like a lot here but i guess it's necessary to learn a little bit more about what it is that she wants to do with her life what it is that he wants to do with his life we're finding out that they're going to graduate soon so oh okay there's that too (laughs) Yeah, yeah, some trouble with the timeline there. Yeah. Uh, with the graduation for sure. One of the troubling things for me here is, and I don't know what kind of screen tests were done ahead of time. Uh, maybe you can speak to that from the commentaries. I feel no chemistry whatsoever between Kirsten Dunst and Toby Maguire. 
and maybe it's my 2022 vision, but uh, his obsession with MJ comes off more creepy and pathetic uh, than sweet and romantic. He makes me think because of those big blue eyes of his, he makes me think of Elijah Wood and the Good Son. I haven't seen it. Okay. Yeah. He's got this like creepy obsession with his aunt in that movie and they have those similar eyes. So that's where my mind goes. I just, I don't like it. Yeah. I, I don't feel invested in the romance when I watch these movies again. And in fact, I become increasingly frustrated with them in Spider-Man two and three. And I, Mm -hmm. overall, I like Spider-Man two more than I like this first Spider-Man movie. But I will say that I think MJ, I, I can appreciate MJ more in this one, just as, again, not as a real character, as a real person who they fleshed out, but I I understand kind of like the role that she plays in this story here in the first one. And then I think that they make the relationship between the two of them more and more frustrating as this franchise went on. So all of that to say Mm -hmm. that I, I too don't really feel invested in, in their romantic connection. It doesn't really feel palpable to me in the way that Andrew Garfield and Emma, Emma Stone feel like they have so much chemistry because well they did as real humans yes, <laughs> um, yes they did they and, certainly and did tom and zendaya as well i i do remember you know being a teenager and, and hearing the rumors and things about uh toby and kirsten dating in real life don't know how much of that was true or not but that's a good point though i hadn't thought about that that two out of the three stars of, of the different franchises were together oh yeah. my god it didn't even click yeah yeah it's just so like as a woman infuriating with mj that they cared so little about this woman, this character, that they couldn't be bothered to just give her basic consistency and and depth. Like, okay, so it's probably just, you know, the movie making people look attractive. But <laughs> it's a problem for me of she walks around in these outfits and shoes and everything that are what, I don't know, $500 yeah. at least. But she comes from this super poor family. Now, that wouldn't be a problem. We could chalk that up to just, oh, this is just, you know, the movie. They want to make her look good. But the issue is they are going to have her make choices throughout this movie that are going to make her look like kind of maybe she's a gold digger. Mm. And Norman Osborn is also going to say something to that effect. Yeah. But there are also things that, that contradict that. So it's like, is it just the movie or like is Flash buying her clothes? You know, mm. are people, it d- does Harry buy her that kimono style dress that she's wearing? Like, what's the deal? Because this girl and the home she comes from don't match. Great point. So their little uh, tete a tete here gets interrupted, of course, by Flash, who shows up in his new wheels, his birthday gift. So, of course, Peter and wants that's one when- now, too. Exactly. And To the script's credit, that is teenage thinking. However, given that it is obsessed toward his seven-year-old Tobey Maguire, it just adds a creep factor. And I'm like, no, you need to find yourself a windowless panel van. That's the guy you are. (laughs) Oh, you know, that's such a good point that, like, you know, you were talking a little bit about how some of his his actions or the way that he treats MJ, the way that he thinks about MJ, it's really on that line between sweet crush you know which again maybe if he were younger it would come off as more of a sweet crush sort of thing but maybe because he is older it veers into that territory of this is a little bit in that obsessive creepy yeah thing did you ever watch frazier 
I've seen like bits and pieces of it over the years. Okay. So you know how the brother Niles was obsessed? He was in love with uh, Daphne. Yes, that rings a bell. Okay. So when the two of them finally got together, things weren't quite right. Like mm-hmm. there there was a problem. There mm-hmm. there was a chemistry problem, a connection problem. And Frazier explains to his brother, you were never in love with her. You were in love at her. Mm-hmm. And that's what this is. Great point. Yeah, that's a great line. Yeah. The idea of her. Yes. Yeah. Rather than the person. Because it seems like he didn't really actually know this girl. Exactly. Which, to your point from earlier, there's almost an irony to, because if they did really know each other, they really do have things they can connect on. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, in terms of right. how they it grew It just makes up, me but... <laughs> tear my hair out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So while MJ and Flash are off gallivanting and Peter sulking, Mr. Osborne here is panicking about his company. And this is when we first hear, it's great, that goblin laugh in his mind. So good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's... That's up there with the Heath Ledger Joker laugh, I think. Excellent Willem Dafoe performance on the laugh. It Like a cartoon come to life. How has that man never won a major award? I don't understand. Yeah, you were. Yeah, this is what you were saying on your, on your No Way Home episode. Yeah, I don't know. So I had mentioned briefly before that the passage of time is a real issue in this movie. And it starts here when... Uncle Ben and Aunt May are worried about Peter acting so strangely lately. Rosemary Harris with that voice. I just can't sometimes. (laughs) And they don't know what's wrong with him. And I'm like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? (laughs) It's been like a day. And everything seemed fine before that. But Ben is acting like Peter's been hate. Like Peter's been a weirdo for months. And if he has been, we don't know. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. It seemed like they were living a totally normal life and that they were all very close up until a day ago. So, and you know, when parents, I'm not a parent, I don't have a teenager, but I've spent enough time in childcare. I've helped raise enough kids to know that when parents start talking about, Oh, how, how do I raise this teenager? It happens a lot earlier than 17. (laughs) That's true. He's about to graduate from high school. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the part when, when he says, Uncle Ben's sitting with him in the car. I know I'm not your father. Then stop pretending to be. This this whole relationship is just off kilter because there are times, and it's just like with MJ, there are times when it seems like Peter's only been with them for like a matter of months or a couple of years. But later on, we're going to establish he's their kid. They've raised him since he was six. By and large, this is his father. Yeah. This is his mother even if he calls them aunt and uncle. But the way he talks here, it makes it seem like he feels like he is an outsider. It's a really great point that there's a big disconnect there. I I guess it, coming at it from the perspective of, of what I like about the scene of them in the car, I there is humor to me in Uncle Ben saying, you know, you're changing. I went through exactly the same thing at your age. And he's just like, not exactly. I like that. Um, and, and again, it, it speaks to the mission statement of the movie, which, as we mentioned, is quite a simple one. It's the who am I story. And, you know, he's saying it's really, really hammering this point, right? We don't know who you are, right? These are the years when a man changes into the man he's going to become for the rest of his life. Be careful who you change into. And it's it's very much 
speaking to the themes of the movie, Uncle Ben is the Joseph Campbell's hero's journey archetypal mentor. Again, these are the rules that are meant to be broken <laughs> when we see mm-hmm. other um, other takes on origin stories in the future, other subversions of, of this genre. For sure. So uh, Mr. Parker here, not being truthful with Uncle Ben. He's not hitting the library. We're going amateur wrestling. Oh, boy. Yes, we are. Um, A a thing I really like. So I don't like the wrestling scene. (laughs) I think I've been pretty positive on a lot of the movies so far. I don't like the wrestling scene. I love the the scene where he sketches the costume. That's a really cool sequence that sticks out in my mind. Feels very comic book. And they were saying on the commentary that they got a a Marvel artist to do it, to do the sketches. So I think that all looks great. And as much as I love that sequence, I don't like the wrestling match. Now, did you catch Octavia Spencer at the sign-up desk? Yes, I did. I did. And what was funny is they even mentioned on the commentary track that she was like somebody's assistant. And they were like, oh, yeah, she's so great. Such a lovely, such a lovely woman. And like now she's Octavia Spencer. It's wild. It just kills me that one of the best actors in this movie is on screen for all of 30 seconds. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And was really not known at all at the time. Now, so Peter registers for this match. Uh, it's gonna, it's promising three thousand uh, dollars for three minutes in the ring to the winner. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I don't care for this either. This gave me some seriously unwanted uh, childhood flashbacks, telling me to snap it to a slim jim. <laughs> oh yeah. I was always because of those commercials and like randomly flipping through TNT at night and accidentally seeing wrestling. I was terrified of Macho Man Randy Savage. Uh, yeah, he was another kind of just staple of of growing up that he was always around. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know about you, but uh, Amy will attest to my um, my phobia with veins, and oh. I can't deal with like super veiny people, but also like men on steroids. It's gross. It's gross. Okay, sorry everybody. It's gross. <laughs> Yeah, my my bigger uh, issue with the scene is, um, it just I, I don't know. It, it doesn't feel like it fits with the rest of the movie, and it's I know that it's meant to kind of show. What I think what bothers me is that th- this feels very selfish of Peter Parker. He wants this car, and so he's going to use these new powers that he has to wrestle <laughs> and get the money and i i know that he's a kid i know that our tom holland peter parker has also made selfish decisions or he's made he's made short-sighted decisions right so maybe i should say short-sighted as opposed to selfish but what i feel like this decision coming from peter in this movie does straddle that line um in, into maybe more of a selfish territory because when we meet tom holland's peter parker in civil war he says you know i couldn't play football then so i'm not going to now and and then here we have Peter in, in this movie who is very willing to out himself, like out these powers um, in this really public arena and to do so for the selfish reason. I know that he needs to go through something like this so that he can change, um, but it's just not my favorite to revisit or watch. Yeah. What I do like is the Bruce Campbell cameo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's great. And it makes it makes me wonder how he's going to show up in Dr. Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, because I'm pretty sure Congress passed legislation in the late 90s that he must appear in all Sam Raimi movies. It's a great point. He's going to have to be in it at some point. 
I do appreciate this very Gotham style uh, audience bringing heads of lettuce conveniently uh, <laughs> to throw at the wrestling match. This is, of course, the scene in which he is named the Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, so originally he wants to go by the human spider. So that's that's a moment of, of humor. <laughs> yes. Yes. And we mentioned some stuff, you know, we wouldn't see in 2022. Here's a line here that we wouldn't get in 2022. That's a cute outfit. Did your husband give it to you? Yeah. Does not age well. Does not age well. Yep. Especially coming, coming from the hero, right? I, I think... More recently, if we were to see a, a, a joke in, in poor taste like that, it might be coming from the person who the narrative has cast as the, the bad guy, so to speak. But to have our hero say something like that is it feels very jarring now. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So Peter does uh, win this match, but only gets paid 100 bucks because he didn't understand the fine print and stretch that match out for a whole three minutes. Yep. Now, as he's leaving, that's when we get our robber here. And I swear, this guy looks like if Joey Fatone hadn't made the cut for NSYNC and had to resort to a life of crime. Frosted tips. (laughs) (laughs) There are frosted tips all over this movie. Yeah, another thing that hasn't aged well. (laughs) No. No, and you know what? It's funny. Hollywood, by and large, still has not understood, and we'll talk about this in Spider-Man 3, that People who are not naturally blonde don't <laughs> generally look good blonde. But to be fair, yep. around this time, probably exactly during this time, is when I had like grocery store bought box highlights. <laughs> um, and I am a person with like dark brown hair and brown eyes. And I, as well as my brother and my cousins and everybody, we we had the box blonde highlights going on. So it was a moment. You're a better person than I, because <laughs> I went with a uh, flaming red oh, okay. and looked like Bozo the clown for a couple of months. <laughs> I'd say Bozo the clown for a month. And then as it started to fade, it went from orange uh, and then it went to pink. Okay. And uh, as you can see, I already don't have much color <laughs> in my face. So it was a fairly stark look. Yeah, the, the blonde also looked orange after a while. Not not a good look. On my hair, at least. No. Not good. <laughs> so this guy, we'll just call him Mr. Robber because he never gets a name. There you go. <laughs> Mr. Robber takes off uh, with his cash, heads out the door, and it's the whole setup here for Uncle Ben. Peter lets him go because that's not his problem. Now, where the hell do these cops come from? when do the the cops show up on the street with uncle ben or no there's cops right here in the hallway oh yeah <laughs> they're like what, what, what's wrong with you you let him go like where first of all where did you guys come from? where did yeah and secondly that's ridiculous cops yelling at an unarmed private citizen to stop a guy with a gun come that's on not realistic at all yeah i you know Peter is so bratty when he's like, I missed the part where that's my problem. But I I get it, right? Like, he is a teenager. And in terms of the story, right, if we're going to go back to Hero's journey, he's refusing the call, right? This is the refusal of the call in that archetypal way of saying that I I didn't get what I wanted out of this, so why should I help anybody else? Well, see, I'm actually on Peter's side here. Okay. I'm I'm totally with him. 
It's not his problem because look at this guy running this place. He's either a bookie, a loan shark. This guy's a criminal. What I see here is one crook robbing another crook. So why should that be anybody's problem? It's certainly not the teenager's responsibility, uh, nor is it the participant in the wrestling match responsibility. I think that Peter is going to get to a place where he believes that helping wherever he can is his responsibility. But you're right. He's not there yet, nor should we expect him to be. Yeah. And I never see Peter as like bratty or whiny or anything. He's definitely not friggin' Eddie Furlong and T2 for sure. <laughs> but because of this problem, because I agree with what Peter did, I never buy the whole Uncle Ben like grief in that story. Mm. It never works for me because I don't think Peter should feel any guilt. It, yeah. it, it's a shitty setup. It should have been done differently. And, and to your earlier point as well the it's a little bit more of this telling and not showing in that the car scene between peter and ben is important but that's the only scene that we really get to establish them having a connection and yeah and and sure it's that very teenage thing like oh man the last time that i saw him i i was being a jerk and i said you're not my dad or you know whatever i think that the grief over uncle ben and the way that 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 is the thing that pushes him to accept the call to be a hero is again something that we we're told more than it then I'll speak for myself more than I really feel when I rewatch the movie. Yeah, I just never believe any of it. I needed more time. I needed more interaction between them. I needed to see even if you just show me like some pictures of them as a family. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. as you're scoping the room. Anything that could have gotten us invested in these two and it was made worse because peter was pushing him away the whole time right right we didn't see that connection and on top of it you already have those those issues with the script toby mcguire does not have the range i don't think to pull off this scene and is there anybody in hollywood with a worse crying face (laughs) (laughs) well perhaps there's a reason it became such a meme yeah, he just doesn't have it. Cliff Robertson, I think, does a great job with the death. Yeah. But uh, Maguire can't match him, and he certainly can't match Willem Dafoe. That's interesting. I I feel like in the recent times that I've rewatched it, I haven't come at it from a place of really evaluating the performance or the acting as much as I've been thinking about the storytelling, but that that is a, a good point. It, in a way, it's like that could help the story in that if you have this kid who is going up against Green Goblin, right? So if you have this actor uh, who's a kid going up against Defoe as Green Goblin, that could uh, help to emphasize some of the the message of the story more um, Mm -hmm. in the way that they're mismatched. But but yeah, that's it. That's it. That's a good point. So once Uncle Ben is dead here. We have Peter going after Mr. Robert. And to the movie's credit, this is cool. This is a cool chase scene. Yeah, it is. It looks good. But uh, once we get to the warehouse and we corner Mr. Robert, um, excuse me, Mr. Raimi, yeah, I saw the not my problem scene like five minutes ago. I haven't forgotten what this guy looks like. I don't need a montage, (laughs) a fairly long montage of that. Of a scene I just saw. You know, just have him step out of the shadows and use an ominous music cue. You know? Bizarre choice. Bizarre choice. Yeah. 
So what's your opinion? Uh, is Peter Parker guilty of murder here or no? <sighs> so that's just a tough one, right? I think in terms of the story, they had to get to a place where Peter was both responsible for this man's death, but didn't actually actively do it, right? Like do the killing. Um, so, right, like to your point, like it, there needs to be a sense of believable guilt or believable responsibility without showing our hero killing someone. <sighs> I don't know. What's your take on it? I do not think he is responsible for Mr. Robber's death in any way whatsoever. Okay. I think that guy's own choices put him on that ledge. You live by the sword, you die by the sword, dude. Is it, not to get too far away from this movie, but based on what we learn later about who was actually responsible for Uncle Ben's death or not, like, does that affect it for you at all? Or can we not even ask that question because we want to, like, like, I guess what I'm trying to wonder is, like, in Spider-Man 3, we learn about Flint Marco, like, obviously. I was just going to say, let's not ask the question because I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's fair. I, and and I, I think that that's a good point is that you shouldn't have to. It, have to it, wait it, two movies. Right. We want to evaluate it just based on what we see here. And yeah, yeah. Thinking of Peter Parker, like if he's a real teenage kid, like no, he doesn't have responsibility here in what happens. Thinking about him as this person who is on this journey of becoming a hero, I think it's necessary for him to look back at this moment and for him to feel a sense of responsibility, and for this to be a moment where something changes for him in terms of how he thinks about what his role is and what his purpose is. But so uh, that's kind of where I'm at with, uh, with this whole death of Mr. Robber. <laughs> okay. That is fair. Absolutely. Yeah. So we head over to uh, our buddy, Gobby. Yes. Real quick. God, yes, Gobby. That line. <laughs> oh. oh, man. So our general, our generic old white man general here, they're running some sort of government tests uh with the suit and the glider and well we just can't have this can we Mm -hmm. so goblin just slaughters everybody that's there uh testing this suit and you know what like all right i know it's of its time i know it's 2002 but man and i can't believe i'm saying this for somebody who watches daredevil like through her fingers (laughs) i need some more a little bit of blood in this movie. I need a little more like real violence than what we get. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And why I'm even having trouble talking about the the death of Mr. Robber scene, right? Is that like, there's a lot of death and a lot of destruction, but it doesn't necessarily feel real. So it's hard to even really connect with it. But you're right, like Green Goblin is responsible for a lot of death here, but it doesn't really feel that way. Right. I do love the shot, the transition shot of the explosion transitioning into the graduation caps flying. That feels very comic book to me in that transition. Yes. Yeah. Almost like you're just flipping the panel. Yeah. yeah I think that's very cool. So, yeah, graduation. Here's a question How long has it been since Ben died? Because no idea. we've got some script issues again. It can't be more than like a week. 
right. since Peter's fight with Flash. Because MJ says to him, oh, Flash is just glad you didn't give him a black eye for graduation. Oh, yeah. Good point. Then we have some jumbling with Harry and Norman, too. Norman says to Peter, oh, you're like a brother to Harry. But at the same time, Osborne only just met Peter. So how long have Peter and Harry been friends? It can't be that long because it doesn't seem like, based on other things said and done, that Harry's been at this school for very long. And where would their paths have crossed otherwise? Yeah, and typically if you have such a close friendship with another kid or another teenager, like you've met their dad before, right? right? <laughs> like if, 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 if they have a dad. <laughs> like yeah, I had my, in high school, <laughs> I, my best, I had my own bedroom at my best friend's house in high school. Yeah, you know the family is what I'm trying to say, right? Yeah, like yeah. you're aware. Yeah, yeah. If you're that close that you're being referred to as a brother. Another one of those little inconsistencies here. And, you know, here we see Aunt May consoling Peter, who misses his uncle. And this is kind of a moment where I just say, ugh, womp womp, because <laughs> McGuire's giving us nothing. Feels, like you said, telling, not so much showing. And we get the voiceover again of, with great power comes great responsibility. You remember that, remember that. That's uh, very much... Yeah, we get that twice. Hit, yep. over, hit over the head. And now we finally get a montage that actually does show the passage of time properly. Yes. And we get a lot of Spider-Manning here. We're getting him being the friendly vigilante in the neighborhood. And so we've had our stereotypical teen clicks. Now we have to hit every New Yorker stereotype. It's like they went through an episode of Law and Order and just like picked out each one. Some Down of them, to the singing cowboy. Yeah, some of them were real. I obviously some of these were not real. Like Lucy Lawless is is here. Um, you know, obviously she's a, she's an actor. But uh, the guys at the construction site they were saying were real people who they came across and had uh, in the movie, and they were really excited about it. Yeah, guys stacking stuff on a truck bed like that kind of thing. <laughs> but I, you're right. This does establish the passage, the passing of time much more effectively i like hearing the speculation about like is he human is he a man is he a woman like what what is going on uh some kind of freaky lou or something right like <laughs> yes. um this the singing it's um it's great and it's a great transition into meeting j jonah jameson and, and looking at the relationship between the press and spider-man yes and he is the second best thing uh in a close tie with Defoe in this movie. I love J.K. Simmons. Mm -hmm. I was a huge fan of him on one of my favorite shows ever. Um, I don't know if you watched it, The Closer on TNT. No, I never watched it. He plays uh, the assistant chief, then chief of police of uh, Los Angeles on that show. And he's just so good at being a smarmy bastard. Yeah. Yeah. He's got a and great voice. He does. And with this character of Jameson, did you watch the animated show as a kid? Yes, I did. It's like he came right out of that. Yes. The hair, the mustache, the whole thing. Yep. And that's one of the best lines in this movie when he says later on, I trust my barber. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's so good. <laughs> and did you notice who his secretary is? Yes. Uh, Elizabeth Banks, right? Again. Yes, again. I'm like, oh. Yeah, I, I, um, when I watched this in October, I was like, wait, that's not, cause I, you know, I, 
hadn't seen it since I had been more aware of who she is. So uh, that was yeah, a, that was and cool you're to see. used to seeing her blonde too. Yes, exactly. So this is when Peter gets his freelance job working for the Bugle, getting mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Jameson here the pictures, exclusive pictures of Spider Man, mm-hmm. and then uh, Peter continues uh, his bit of stalking here and <laughs> discovers MJ working as a waitress at this dumpy coffee shop. Yes. She's quite embarrassed about it, which I don't, again, I don't know how true that rings to me. Like as somebody who's just graduated from high school and like, yeah, like she wants to be an actress. Like, I think it's understandable that you also got to make ends meet. And a lot of people who are aspiring creatives, you know, also work at diners. I don't, I don't see why there's so much um, shame that she has in it, but I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I think the shame comes from the fact that she told everybody she was going to make it big on Broadway. Mm -hmm. And instead, she ends up the cliche waiting tables, which, as you said, is perfectly fine. And what so many, you know, big time actors in Hollywood started out doing. Um, The part that I find unrealistic is her walking around in these nice designer heels uh, for eight hours a day. Can we get this woman some kits? Great point. (laughs) And I think I think I. And I think today we would see that. We would see her looking physically more realistic. I agree. And this is the part where she tells him, yeah, yeah, working as a waitress. Oh, don't tell Harry, a.k.a. new boyfriend. Oh, do I hate this. I hate it so much. Yeah, it feels like she's just being kind of, you know, from the storytelling perspective, she's being passed around from different guys who Peter views as a threat in some way or views as a foil to himself in some way. And it, it doesn't feel, doesn't feel deep it, enough. It's demeaning. Uh, it's insulting. And it also just doesn't make any narrative sense. No. And what we also see here very clearly is that Harry Osborne is not just an asshole. He's also an idiot. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking about his characterization into the second movie as well. Like, yeah, Harry, <laughs> Not, there's um there's something missing there. Not not all the lights are on upstairs. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think he definitely got through high school, you know, on Peter's coattails. I think there was probably a lot of copying going on, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And the whole Norman Harry relationship is confusing too. Because here we see that Norman respects Peter. Peter obviously, oh, the son he really wanted, mm-hmm. you know, this is what he would have preferred. Sure. Norman respects Peter for wanting to make it on his own and not accepting his job offer. Good on him. Sure. He clearly values this trait in people. Mm -hmm. But this makes it his relationship with Harry incongruous. Because if that's a trait you really value in people, you wouldn't raise a super spoiled kid who treads on your name. You would raise that kid to also value that trait and to have that trait. And it's not a matter of denial with Norman, you know, denial of the shithead that he's raised. The movie doesn't have enough depth for that. It's just a poorly constructed relationship. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Peter and Harry also have a very nice apartment. (laughs) Well, Norman's footing the bill for that, so that's fine for me. But this is another one of those moments where I'm like, Jesus, Parker, grow up hair. He broke the bro code. Big time. 
I if you're such close friends that you're like brothers, why don't you know who he's dating? Especially if it's the girl you grew up next to and have been in love with since you were like four. I yeah. Yeah. And Harry is a douche. Like, if you <laughs> genuinely want to date her, if you genuinely like that woman, you have a conversation with your buddy and say, hey, man, I know you've really liked her for a long time. Are you going to make a move or not? Let me know, because if not, then I would like to date this girl. But the fact is, Harry's a shit, one, for not doing this, and two, because he doesn't really give a shit about MJ. Right. That becomes quite clear. Yeah, I wish that there had been more to his character as well. Kind of like with MJ, we, MJ, Harry, they're like a stand-in for an idea. Um, they don't feel like really fleshed out people. And with Harry too, it's it's very much like he's there to kind of present an obstacle to Peter. Um, but he, what is it for him? Is it like a stat, a status thing? So that's why he's dating MJ. Well, MJ doesn't have a lot of status. How did he get to know MJ? She's beautiful. Is that what it is? Like, I, like he just is interested in having a pretty girl on his arm. I don't, I don't know. I mean, he's a super rich white kid in 2002. Snap his fingers. He could have whatever girl he wants. Yeah. So the fact that he did pick her, that's when Peter should be like, really, dude? Really? You could have had any girl you want. You pick this one. There's no emotion from him whatsoever. Right. What's their connection? Why Why her? And on her part, too. Why him? Uh, oh, well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Going to get to that. Yeah. <laughs> so where are we so going we next? Gr- is, 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 is the next scene the World Unity Festival or are we not there yet? Uh, almost. Okay, at, okay. Oh, is that what it is? The World Unity Festival? <laughs> I couldn't. I'm like, is this the Thanksgiving parade? What the fuck is this? The Macy Gray okay. concert. So uh, before we get to the parade here, whatever that might be, I'm not quite sure. Uh, We've got to stop back at the Bugle so Peter can sell some more Spider-Man picks. And man, I just love these scenes with J.K. Simmons. He steals every minute he's on screen. The mannerisms, the body language, these phone calls with his wife. Oh, so funny. And everything is just bam, bam, bam. So quick with him. I love it. Yeah, this this feels like the best aspects of comic book storytelling come to life, like the repartee Mm -hmm. between the two of them. It's it's great. Meanwhile, things are not going well for Dr. Osborne over at Oscorp, even though the company itself is uh, doing quite well. The board of directors is looking to make a change. And they've not made Norman aware of it, right? He's learning. He's learning that he's going to be ousted here. Yeah, I got to say, this was a pretty rotten way to do this mm-hmm. not that they deserve to all be murdered for it <laughs> no <laughs> no but it, it it establishes that the real life norman osborne detached from green goblin would understandably have some some anger and resentment here yeah for sure now we've mentioned uh nickelback earlier <laughs> does anything date this movie harder in 2002 than a macy gray performance great it's transitioning from that boardroom scene right you're out norman and then it's just like let's hear it from <laughs> macy gray like yeah um fantastic Gosh, is she alive oh i have to assume so i i i don't <laughs> i don't actually know she really she very much had her moment i enjoyed i enjoyed her songs um when they were when they were very popular, I hope she's doing well. Uh, she is alive. I can confirm, okay. but you just never know these days. 
Yeah, Macy Gray. Like what? It was two thousand two, and um, uh, that song, her, her "I'll Try" song. I try song. I know, uh, epic. You know, iconic. I do. You know why? Because when I hear that song, I always think of uh, that was the song they used when Michael J. Fox left Spin City. Oh, really? <laughs> yep. Yep, gets me every time. And oh, I hate man. that it gets me every time, but it does. Great song. So uh, Peter is here taking pictures for the paper and just happens to, you know, look up in, despite the fact that it's Manhattan. And he's able to see uh, MJ and Harry here out on this balcony. Maybe, maybe I'm going to give it too much credit, but maybe his spider sense not only works for threats such as green goblin but maybe his spider sense also works for oh no my friend is is uh <laughs> dating the girl that i'm interested in well that could work but then harry also sees him i'm like yeah, no good point. no <laughs> so let's get to that question you asked uh, just a few minutes ago why is mj dating harry oh boy there's a there's a lot going on here namely the fact that it is clear abundantly clear she doesn't like him they don't seem to have much in common or much to talk about no uh no yeah she turns away when he tries to kiss her and honestly i can't blame her there i wouldn't want james franco touching me either he's an asshole well and and he's not even like an asshole asshole he's like a i need to impress my daddy like it like right well you should have worn this dress which sounds very demanding and like that's you don't tell somebody what to wear but then he follows it up with because i'm trying to impress my dad <laughs> which makes it even yeah. worse now from mj's side one could argue that she dates assholes because her father abused her and it's a pathology but again the movie doesn't have enough depth to make that plausible mm -hmm. so she doesn't like him. It kind of makes her then seem like a gold digger because if not for his money, what's she doing with him? I mean, look at her. She probably gets hit on 10 times a day working at that coffee shop alone. Yeah. She could have her pick of guys. I mean, later we're going to see there's at least four guys who want her, right? But she goes for a filthy rich guy she clearly doesn't like. So what are we supposed to think? But at the same time, if she's a gold digger, she's really bad at it because <laughs> think she would cozy up to him. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I think and I think we're not supposed to think about it. Right. I think you're absolutely right. I had never thought of it that like that before that from her perspective, the decisions and who she's dating could really suggest like, oh, like she likes the flashy car or she likes the status or the, the wealth. But that doesn't really feel consistent with what we see of the rest of her character i think that they just again it's it's a symptom of them not really fleshing her out and not really thinking through what her decisions would be because i think the story treats her again much more as that object of desire much more as she's kind of a plot piece being moved around that we're we're not giving the time that the story is not giving the time to think about her agency and think about her choices which is why yeah, it just it doesn't land for us yeah and it just makes me so angry on behalf of Kirsten Dunst and so many other actresses who had to take roles like this because that's what was there to get screen time. That they had to, as she does, debase herself in three movies it's actually, to have a job. Yeah, it's actually so so funny you mentioned that because uh, so she is featured on this commentary track and she, you know, she sounds very enthusiastic about the movie and shares some some stories about, you know, things during filming 
But she even mentions becoming annoyed by her own screaming in the movie. She and she talks about that sound of just like the the woman in the action movie just screaming over and over again. And, and she talked about how it, it got to her. And I think you're so right that that's a little bit of a glimpse into that's just something that was part of the story. And, and you know, listen, in terms of archetypal stories, like there's nothing inherently wrong with having a damsel in distress character. And that's very much who she is in this movie. But what we've seen in more recent storytelling is that you can have a damsel in distress who's not necessarily a damsel, right? You can have a person who is in distress. It doesn't have to always be the girl, the woman. Uh, and we saw, we've also seen that there can be films where a, a woman can be that person in distress, but that there's also other women in the movie <laughs> so that you don't right. end up with the message of, oh, this is the only thing a woman can be. This is the only thing that an actress uh, has access to. It's just one example of of a role. Um, and that's very much not the case in this Spider-Man movie where it's really a lot of women screaming uh, on the edge of a building <laughs> for a yeah. lot of this. And I always, I always fall back on uh, Karen Page on Daredevil of being such a great example of what you're talking about. Sure. Yeah. So everybody's, I shouldn't say everybody's having a good time. It looks like actually at least our three main characters here are not having a good time no. at all. And uh, that's when Goblin flies in yes, he on does. his, on his old glider here. Yes, he does. Uh, Stan Lee cameo in some of the action as well. Yeah. Real quick. No, no mm -hmm. speaking, but yeah, real quick. Now I have to renege on something I said earlier. I said I was totally fine with the visual effects in this movie. As far as CGI goes, yes, totally. Absolutely fine. But Jesus, this balcony. Yeah. Where did they film this? Universal Studios? Come on. <laughs> yeah, that's not the, not the best look. Yeah, and here we have, of course, as you said, MJ dangling off the edge here, getting rescued. Uh, that's all she is good for is just being a tool and a toy for the men in this movie. And I use the term men loosely <laughs> yeah and and some more uh very cartoony comics-y uh moments with green goblin right we'll meet again spider-man <laughs> <laughs> which that just but... makes me think i think of dr claw next time yeah, next time <laughs> and once we regroup here at the apartment we just get more of this ambiguity because harry's on the phone with mj telling her he wants to buy her something but yeah. then she just hangs up on him yeah yeah <laughs> i don't know uh, this this is the the scene where they're on the phone and he's he's a little threatened because she keeps calling spider-man incredible uh-huh okay <laughs> yeah and you know what harry anybody is incredible compared to you <laughs> except maybe for the guy playing you and he, he, and yeah, he only knows to relate to her by saying, I'm going to buy you something, right? Like whether or not she were, were meant to see her as uh, having gold digging motivations, he certainly seems to think that that's all she could possibly see in him, right? Like, I'll buy mm -hmm. you something. I want to make you feel better. Like, oh boy, I don't know. Just not. Yeah, I think, um, I think enough. Harry Osborne. This is, I'm putting on my true crime cap for a minute, but I would put Harry Osborne to the lower side of the sociopath spectrum. Mm. That's interesting. Um, that, that might just be script. I don't know. Um, probably doesn't have enough depth there to talk about that, but he doesn't seem to have 
any capacity for like genuine love. I don't think he loves his father. I think he's afraid of his father. Yeah. I think he reveres his father, but yeah. I don't think he loves him. Great point. I don't think he loves anybody. I think he's capable of it. He's kind of going through um, the motions and, of what he thinks he needs to go through, right? Like, yeah. And that, honestly, that might just be a lackluster performance issue. Could be. Could be the could be the writing. Could be the time uh, that wasn't spent to flesh it out. Could be the performance. Could be a combination of all of those things. Now, speaking of Daddy Dearest, we've got to go see Norman here chatting with the goblin. I would rather watch Willem Dafoe having these goblin freakouts than see watching Tobey Maguire do anything in this movie. The the goblin freakouts are so good. The the talking to himself, fantastic, fantastic. He's the mirror, so manic. Yeah. Yes. And Defoe does a great job with that like slide, mm-hmm. you know, where it's not full on. It's a gradual thing. And he's just perfect with it. He's genuinely scary. Oh, not yeah. the goblin when he puts that mask on, but just as Defoe. He is 100%. scary. 100%. Yes. Yeah. One of the best scenes in the movie is is this one. When he says, um, Follow the cold shiver running down your spine. I'm right here. Oh, man. That's so, so good. Yeah. You killed them. We killed them. Fantastic. So he's not going to sit idly for too long. And he shows up blasting into the bugle, into Jameson's office while Peter is there. And to Jameson's credit, he doesn't give up Peter. Yeah. Great point. Um, I don't think he has any journalistic integrity. I would like to think that was just a little bit of humanity creeping sure. in. <laughs> I do like Spider-Man and the Green Goblin. You like that? I made it up myself. <laughs> <laughs> Only he could. So Goblin's idea here is, and this is a similar issue I have, you know, when it comes to the glider in the suit. He wants Spider-Man to join him. For what? What's, what's the end game of this? It's a really good point, right? Doesn't he says something at some point, like imagine what we could create or destroy. Like, well, what, what do you want to create or destroy? I know. Um, yeah, yeah, we get it. You're the bad guy. So <laughs> where do we go from here? Yeah. And once the goblin understands that Peter is not going to turn traitor here, he's not going to join him. That's when he decides, well, you've just got to go then. Yeah, and I I do like some, you know, again, trying to think of this as as our origin story here, as our hero's journey here. Peter, through the past few scenes that we've been talking about, he's going through his tests and trials and he's encountering his allies and enemies. Uh, and, and to have the villain, to have Green Goblin articulating, again, some of the message of the story and kind of forcing Peter to articulate who he is becoming, what his choices are. I do like some of this, right? Uh, Again, comic book cheesy line, you and I were not so different, but, you know, Peter says, I'm Mm -hmm. not like you, you're a murderer. And Green Goblin says, I chose my path, you chose the way of the hero. They found you amusing for a while, the people of the city, but one thing they love more than a hero is to see a hero fall, uh, excuse me, to see a hero fail, fail, die trying. In spite of everything you've done for them, eventually they will hate you. Why bother? And and he says, because it's right. So I think this is interesting. It gets into some of the same thematic territory as like, let's say the, th- the Dark Knight. What we want to see more than a hero is to see that hero fall. Um, yep, and- you're absolutely right. I was just thinking that, yeah. that it's there is some Goyer-esque writing in here. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, this is the stuff. This is the stuff that I like. The, the stuff between Peter and and Green Goblin are really speaks to 
what this film does well, which is that archetypal hero versus villain story and pointing out the ways in which they have some similarities, but more importantly, pointing out the ways in which Peter's story diverges. That path of a hero, what does that mean? And that he's going to do the right thing because it is the right thing to do. And Defoe, to his credit, really, he puts these scenes on his back. And, you know, a lot like Dark Knight 2, although it, it was the ending, this is a turning point also in that Peter is feeling the outside pressure because Jameson gets the city to turn on Spider-Man. Yeah. So making him even more isolated. Mm-hmm, very much so. And that Peter is presented with a choice, right? Osborne says to him, Green Goblin says to him, like, I'm offering you the choice. You can join me. And so we need to see Peter make a different choice. We need to see him actively choose the path of the hero and not just sort of end up being in the path of the hero in order to make it um, to make it powerful. Right. So we get more jumbling here because Peter and MJ, oh yeah, just happened to meet up. Only took you know, <laughs> two buses in a cab. We hear that Aunt May and MJ's mom are friends. It's the same problem. Yeah. Here's where I really start to scratch my head with MJ's whole career in God, this kills me in Spider-Man 2. You're an 18-year-old with no acting experience whatsoever. You're not getting auditions. You're slinging coffee and you're not getting auditions. It's not happening. It's expected that, that you would be, uh, you know, really, really paying your dues, really having to put yourself out there. And we get a lot more confusion here. Mm-hmm. between this Harry, MJ, Peter love triangle. Peter finally grows a pair and asks her out to dinner, which it seems like she wants him to do. However, she cannot go to said dinner with Peter because she has a date with Harry. I don't understand because he'll say, oh, it's none of my business. And she's like, are you sure it isn't? Like, it certainly seems like she knows at this point that Peter has feelings for her and that she has feelings for Peter. So what are we still doing with Harry? <laughs> oh, so frustrating. Over the course of the entire Raby Spider-Man trilogy, so frustrating the the ways in which Peter and MJ communicate with each other or don't communicate with each other uh, and... It's not super fun to rewatch. I, and I, I'm not, I, I guess I'm cheating a little bit because I'm not sticking just to this movie, but I'm thinking about their relationship over the course of all three. And that's the part that's the most frustrating to me. I, I want to root for them because that's what Peter wants. And Peter is our hero here. Peter is our POV character. But there's just so many missed opportunities and so much confusion and so much back and forth that I think especially Spider-Man 2, like one minute to the next, it's like, are they together? Are they not together? Like, like it, it just becomes so confusing. So Peter leaves it alone for now. MJ takes off, but she is in the rain and immediately cornered by no less than four growling Oof. men yeah. in a dark alley. Ugh, terrible. Growling. Did we need that on top of everything else? Definitely not. No. Uh, another damsel in distress moment for her. and Number three. Yep, yep. And uh, Spider-Man, so Peter asks Spider-Man when she asks, you know, like, oh, are you my superhero stalker? Like, ooh, weird turn of phrase. Um, but he's like, I was in the neighborhood, which is the same exact thing that Peter just said to her a little bit earlier, like in the previous scene. I was in the neighborhood. So it makes you kind of wonder, like, ooh, is she, is she figuring it out? 
But there, there was actually a great moment in the commentary track when they were talking about the uh, the kiss scene and wondering aloud, like, oh, does she know? Does she have some sense? I think it's even Kirsten Dunst, if not one of the producers. I, but I think it's Kirsten Dunst who says something like, MJ is not that bright. <laughs> no, definitely <laughs> it's not. It's really funny. Uh, I do give Kirsten Dunst a tremendous amount of credit, though, because personally, um, I would rather kiss my dog than Tobey Maguire. And I got to tell you, she's pretty liberal with the tongue. For as iconic as the kiss scene moment is, like there, there is also a lot of conversation about how or it, it's very well known about how uncomfortable it was to to film. Yes. So it's like getting waterboarded, basically. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I, for Toby to be upside down like that. Not not great. Yeah. <laughs> so MJ is rescued once again. And we head over to uh, the trap that the goblin has set. And there's this one woman. She's like uh, that psycho. Um, I can't remember his name. Uh, the My Pillow guy. I just call this the My Baby Lady. <laughs> yeah. And like that stuff worked in Tim Burton's Batman mm. because it was in that universe. And here I'm just like, no, no, this is not a thing. <laughs> Especially since this was like the clearest example of a doll in a blanket that I've ever seen on screen. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah, so Goblin set this trap for Spider-Man to lure him there. And again, this is one of those great moments for Defoe being that campy character he's supposed to be yes very much so <laughs> are you in or are you out <laughs> yep but once again peter can't quite seal the deal here goblin gets away once again but peter is not unscathed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. got that little cut on his arm and this is a transition I like. Again, the like like you said before, like turning the page, we have the fire uh, and we see Goblin transitioning into now an image of Osborne who kind of just feels like he's very confused, like he's kind of shaking it off. And then we get to the Thanksgiving scene, which is which is great. And here we get another moment where I facepalm and say, God damn, is that a great line? Work was murder. Yeah, excellent line. <laughs> like that's the kind of writing that, this movie needed if it was going to go in this direction that it did mm-hmm. so here i think like there's very little of norman osborne left at this point this is like 95 percent goblin in, in norman's defense pre-goblin juice i don't think he would have treated mj like this yeah i don't think so i don't think we're meant to believe that he would this whole sequence is great though i it, it's very much like feels like the precursor to the suspense and tension that's created in Spider-Man Homecoming between Peter and Vulture. Uh, oh, my God. Yeah, that dramatic oh, irony that of who knows yep. and who doesn't know. And it's not, listen, I don't think this scene has the same level as that scene no, by any means. No. But, it, you know, for its time, and th- this feels like a memorable one to me that, like, ooh, you really feel that... Uh, that tension of what's going to happen when they go up to his bedroom and he's up on the ceiling and the blood dripping down. It, it's, it's a good scene. It is. And, you know, like you said, with homecoming in that car ride, they both know yeah. who each other is in that moment here. Only Norman realizes right. that Peter is Spider-Man and not vice versa. Exactly. So once Norman realizes how Peter got that cut, he tells Harry MJ's a gold digger get rid of her. 
And that little bastard just takes it. Yeah. Defends his father. And that's when I fully said to myself, when he tells MJ, keep your mouth shut, oh, you need to be in a cell somewhere because I'm pretty sure you've done some bad shit, buddy. He's, he, I would have some more sympathy for Harry Osborne if we did get more of his story fleshed out. Like if he was really painted as a victim of his father who just cannot stand up to his father, uh, um, if we had that established for us, if we had that established for us as a point of connection between Harry and MJ, right? Like maybe both coming from abusive fathers in one way or another, that could be something that's actually interesting, but it's just not fleshed out here. There's just not, it's not given that time. And so instead it's just like, oh, who is this jerk who is just going to go along with whatever his daddy says, you know what I mean? And not stick up for his girlfriend. It uh, doesn't land well. You're totally right. That That's how it could have gone and probably should have gone because yeah. instead I come away seeing Harry Osborne as this spoiled little trust fund kid who had all this privilege and wasted it that his father gave him opportunities that he just threw away. I don't see Norman as prejuice as a abusive or honestly all that domineering. He's not shown to be all that bad. We don't see enough of him and Harry to know that. So it's Harry who comes off looking bad, especially with the treatment of MJ. I despise him not for anything he's done to Peter, but mainly for the misogyny. And speaking of misogyny, it's time to go brutally attack a defenseless old lady. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, right. Uh, Goblin, Osborne conversation again um, about how Spider-Man might be invincible, but we can destroy Parker Neither the body nor the mind, but the heart. First, we attack his heart. So, right. Yeah. And to her credit, Rosemary Harris, I think, is great in this scene. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it's <laughs> it's so extreme. It's so campy. Like she's literally praying, and then the goblin attacks. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, you gotta. Uh, there's moments where I'm just like, ah, oh, just just gotta lean into it for what this is. Hmm. Now, I have not seen the Christopher Reeves Superman movie since I was really little. But mm-hmm. I'm going to say here, even without seeing those, knowing Lois Lane, I'm going to say that this movie, this franchise, is the worst superhero franchise movie for women's representation. I mean, I'm trying to think of of others that I have seen. I, I too, haven't seen all of the the old uh, Superman films or or Batman. Yeah, because those came. The first one I think came out in what seventy eight. So we weren't even born yet. Yeah, I have yeah. seen them all. I just not since I was really little. Yeah, and I all of the the Batman films from eighty nine onward. I think. I, yeah, I I don't think there's this issue here of this this damseling because i'm trying to think about those those batman movies and like there are different things for the female characters to do even if there aren't that many of them um so right well same with x-men too there are enough women in those movies yeah to rate to elevate them yeah you're right i mean this 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 one right here this movie right here it's very it's his love interest and his mother figure and and that's fine. Th- those are totally valid character types, but 
they're just cast in these roles where they are it's more about what the plot can do to them and how that serves mm-hmm. his story which okay again you know he is our titular hero and to a certain extent all of these movies focus around that person and that person's story but there are just like you said so many other examples of where it's done in a way that doesn't feel like the extreme amount of damseling that this movie does so after this attack aunt may has to spend some time in the hospital mm-hmm. where we just get more MJ and Peter confusion because like you said a minute ago, well, does she kind of maybe know he's Spider-Man? Does she have any idea with that line? Because now, even though it seemed like earlier she had feelings for Peter and she definitely now knows Peter has feelings for her because he asked her out. How shitty is it to then start telling this guy that you're in love with Spider-Man and how wonderful Spider-Man is? That's a really shitty thing to do. It's weird. It's really weird. <laughs> like it just needed to be the, the movie just needed to get to this place where they had this conversation, but it doesn't make any any sense really. Yeah, and then this whole speech that Peter gives to MJ about what he said to Spider-Man about her. I'm like, it's a good thing we're in the hospital cuz I'm going to throw up. <laughs> you feel strong teenagers and at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, and that's a big problem is because they never talk or act the way teenagers talk or act Mm -hmm. ever. Yeah. And again, even, you know, there's there's some pretty words he says here about how, like, you don't know what you feel, but you know the kind of man you want to be. It's as if you've reached the unreachable, you weren't ready for it. But none of this means anything. Like, where's the concrete, you know, you feel like you know what kind of man you're meant to be because mj you are x y and z because you do these things because you say these things because you are who you are here are the qualities about you like he never says anything about that it's just again like kind of like what you said before about like being in love at someone right it's like this idea of her what she represents so it doesn't work to establish a connection between them it works to underline how much he feels for her and what she represents to him, but it doesn't establish a connection. And it's such flowery screenwriting. Like yeah. people don't talk like this. Like no. compare it to In the Dark Knight when Harvey and and Bruce and uh, their dates, they're, they're sitting at the table and Harvey comes out with, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Like that is a trailer line. That is an ultimate screenwriting line. Yes. But it still works yeah. because one, Aaron Eckhart has the gravitas to pull it off. Mm-hmm. Second, it still fits with his character. Like this guy is a district attorney. You can picture him knowing famous quotes. You can picture yeah. him using that kind of language Good because point. he would use that kind of language on the stump campaigning. So it fits with his character. Not with this kid who's 17, who we haven't even seen in an English class to like maybe have <laughs> learned some Byron or, or whatever. Great point. You know, this is not a teen moment. And also, again, MJ is apparently close enough with him to visit his aunt in the hospital. Again, it's that inconsistency. Like, it's believable. They grew up next to each other. But then that makes things from earlier in the movie not as believable. So I don't know. Yes. And they're holding hands here, which, I mean, they have every right to do. They're friends. It's a moment Aunt May is lying in the hospital bed, but Doucheface walks in and he just can't have any of that. And Harry can't get mad here. Or at least if Harry is so much of an asshole that he gets mad at this, 
Peter has to be like, dude, first of all, nothing was happening. Second, you broke the bro code first. All right. He says here that he knows that Peter has loved MJ since he was in fourth grade. So right. You knew that all along. Yeah. So Harry goes whining to daddy saying MJ is in love with Peter and that, oh, dad, you were right about her. But no, he wasn't because if she's in love with Peter, that makes her the opposite of a gold digger. I don't know what to call that. Like a dirt loader? <laughs> is that what that would be? I don't, I don't know. know. Yeah, great point. At this point, I had become a meme and I was just like throwing papers <laughs> on the couch. Yeah, and then it transitions from that conversation to what's supposed to be a little bit more of like, I guess, a father-son heart-to-heart, right? Like, oh, you know, I haven't always been there for you, but I'm proud of you. I'm going to make it up to you. And uh, okay. Yeah, and that's the other problem with James Franco casting is that if you want us to feel any bit of sympathy for the character of Harry Osborne, don't cast one of Hollywood's most punchable smug faces. <laughs> so now it's time for Peter and Aunt May to have their little heart to heart. And there's one line here that just had me going like, ah, pump the brakes. Mm-hmm. Aunt May says to Peter that he's doing too much. You're not Superman, you know. And if all of the other writing problems didn't exist in that movie, I'd be able to say, okay, Mr. Cap, wink, wink, that's cute. But in a movie that has so many problems with the script, I say to myself, I can't help it. So wait, does that mean Superman exists in this universe as a character, as like an actual entity? That That's a problem. Yeah, you know, I I, I don't mind this line too much. It's definitely a... I don't think so. Okay. Nowadays, right? What we know of the MCU is, and, and other superhero storytelling is very much all about interconnected worlds and meta knowledge and all of these things that in 2002, when this movie was made, were not really part of the conversation. So I feel like at the time, it could just be sort of seen as this cute nod without sure. it being something that raises these larger questions. When we look at it today, though, it's very much something where we're like, we have so much net meta knowledge that's been built upon in the last 20 years that we have to relate to it in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. And it like once it's like not being able to unhear something that's said. Yeah. like once you're past a point in time, you can't not notice it. Totally. So in bitching to daddy here, Norman realizes that the key to getting Spider-Man slash Peter Parker is, of course, to kidnap MJ which Peter also realizes on the phone there. And that is a a cool moment when Goblin gets on the phone. I like that. (laughs) Again, very of the moment. We're not going to really see a a hero on a payphone anymore, but, um, but I really like that. Yeah. For our young, for our younger listeners, that device that uh, Peter was using outside at May's hospital room, that was indeed called a payphone where at one point in time we used to take quarters, which are these little coins that (laughs) are 25 cents and stick them into the phone and dial a number we knew in our heads. Yeah, yeah, very true. Because <laughs> that was a thing. Uh, now, here's a part where everybody can really judge me if they want. Uh, tell me, does it make me a monster that I would choose to save my husband over a bus full of children? Oh, my goodness. Like, so this is like your your <laughs> superhero conundrum question, the superhero version of the trolley pop problem or something like that. This is in Batman Forever too, uh, which was one of my favorite moments oh, as God, a kid. Oh, God, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Is he safe? Um, 
<laughs> Nicole Kidman as Chase Meridian or um, Robin, uh, Chris O'Donnell as Robin, uh, stuck in my brain forever. <laughs> Don't worry, I've got a handful of gold coins in my non-existent pocket. <laughs> there it is. Um, but yeah, I mean, I like, so Goblin and his cartoon ways, Spider-Man, this is why only fools are heroes, because you never know when some lunatic will come along with a sadistic choice. Let die the woman you love or suffer the little children. Spider-Man, save us. They're all yelling out. And he says, make your choice, Spider-Man. You know, we are who we choose to be. Now choose. So I like, again, I like thematically how this connects in with the origin story, how this connects to the who am I story, the how do my choices define me story. Uh, But of course, if you are Spider-Man, there is no choice here other than you have to save both (laughs) because you were were Spider-Man and that's the story that this is. So he he obviously is able able to figure it out. Uh, And again, not a great look for MJ that she there. There's so much screaming and there's so much like. Listen, MJ, just you just got to climb down. And she's like, no, I can't climb down. I can't. And it's like, no, you just have to climb down. Like, I, I feel like, again, would much rather see this play out in a way where MJ is a little bit more competent and can say to Peter, like, all right, like, thank you. Now I got this. Like, let me try to help out a little bit. Let me at least be able to calm down to the point where I can climb down and you can and you can do what you need to do. But alas, that's that's not the character we see. Yeah, especially when you look at Kirsten Dunst and you're like, Woman, I know you're running like 20 miles a week and doing yoga every day. You can handle this shit. <laughs> she definitely can. Now, I have no problem with the concept of having the hero make the choice. I think it's great in yeah. The Dark Knight. But my issue here is that it doesn't really serve a purpose. Like, there were no real emotional stakes to it because we we don't have that idea of, of the Joker wanting to really break Batman. And instead, here, the goblin's goal was just to kill him. Just kill him. Yeah. To to your point, I think that the the choice has never been done more effectively than in the Dark Knight. Yeah. The way that it's presented in the Dark Knight subverts the the expectations that we have from the more kind of cheesy comic book version from something like Batman Forever or here in Spider Man, which, as you say, is the words that Green Goblin is saying. I think are important. They're resonant thematically. But in terms of the larger mechanics of the plot, it doesn't necessarily match. So I think that's a really good point. Yep, exactly. So Peter, of course, saves MJ. And we have our final fight here uh, with the goblin. And it's only now, once he takes the mask off, that Peter realizes uh, that it is Norman Osborn. Yeah. And this would also have resonated more, like Uncle Ben, if we had gotten more time. If we had seen... Norman like acting fatherly towards Peter and you know maybe Harry in the background looking on jealously that kind of thing this is a great moment here too of Defoe pretending to be sane pretending to be Norman yes I thought that that was done really really well uh again Defoe acting Defoe's acting is incredible and we get to see him take the mask off so that Green Goblin mask does quite literally mask his face And Mm -hmm. as we know, Willem Dafoe's acting face is incredible and there's so much that he can do to really express those emotions. So it's a limitation for a lot of this movie that that he is behind that goblin mask and and that Toby's behind the Spider-Man mask in some of these scenes. And they actually talked about that on the commentary as well, that in this final scene, we do get to see some of Peter's face because the mask is ripped and that allows for some more connection between the actors here. 
Yes, and to that point, that's another reason I think the casting of Defoe was go- so good. He's got a great voice. Yeah. If you're going to cover up somebody's face, they have to have a really great expressive voice. 100%, yes. He sure does. So uh, Goblin tries to kill Peter with the glider, but he dodges it, and Norman kills himself instead. And this is another moment where I think his final request here of don't tell Harry shows that he was at least trying to be a good father. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. He wants to protect him. Yeah. In his final moment, he's thinking of his son. Yeah. It's a really good point. So Spider-Man, rather than Peter, brings uh, dead Norman home. And man, how gross a ride must that have been? Yeah. It feels like a little bit of a bizarre Because that's a lot of blood. I don't know what his other alternative would have been. Yeah. But to just, like, carry his naked body <laughs> home and just lay him on the couch, like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of bizarre. Yeah, he just got impaled by, like, a huge metal thing. Like, that's yeah. not going to be pretty. Why would you want Harry to discover him? Yeah, bad. Very bad. Weird, weird decision. But, of course, it's because we have to see Harry seeing Spider-Man do this and thinking Spider-Man killed him. Again, an instance of... Well, we need this to happen. We don't care how we get there. Yeah, ex- exactly. Exactly. And if if Harry were a little brighter or I guess if it were written in a different way, then there could have been an opportunity to understand that Spider-Man was helping by dropping him off. I don't know. Was he helping by dropping him off? Uh, but th- that we shouldn't necessarily make the jump to the conclusion that it was Spider-Man's fault. Right. But now that you say that about Harry needing to be brighter, part of me does feel like him and MJ deserve each other because they're both morons. There we go. If only the, the film had really understood the connections that do exist between Harry and MJ. Yeah. So we get to uh, the funeral here. And mm-hmm. this speech that MJ gives Peter is just as cringy as the one in the hospital. Yeah. And. Yeah. This might be the biggest problem with MJ is I don't understand what she sees in Peter Parker. And I don't mean that from like um, an attraction or, you know, appearance point of view. I mean, literally, they've barely spent any time together. They've barely had interactions in this movie. And not only within the movie, but they'll say, oh, haven't seen you in months. Yeah. Haven't seen you forever. When has there been an opportunity or time to even get to know each other? Yeah. And if, if this scene played out like her saying something like, Peter, I've realized that I really want to get to know you. I really like you. Like, let's date. Um, that might, might make more sense. But they jump to being in love very quickly. <laughs> um, yeah. Maybe some of, you know, not to give it too much credit, maybe some of it is a little bit of a trauma response. Maybe some of it is the fact that he is representative of um, he's very different than the other guys who she has been involved with and uh, compared with them, right? He is certainly a bit more sensitive uh, and seems to care about her more, care about her as a person a bit more. I don't know. Maybe I'm just trying to find reasons for it, but it, it, it really um, is surprising that she so quickly is just like, Oh yeah, I love you. Yeah. It's like, she goes total opposite with him. Yeah. It's like she goes total opposite with Peter, where I want to be like, honey, you know, there's a middle ground. Yeah, good point. So, yeah, I will say that, you know, in classic 
story fashion. This movie, because it is the first in a trilogy, it can't end with that kind of typical origin story hero's journey reward of Peter ending up in a happy relationship with MJ. Uh, He has to, again, one more time, make this make a choice. And the choice that he makes is to let her go, uh, to not pursue that relationship with her because of those words echoing in his head. With great power comes great responsibility. And I do, as I mentioned earlier, appreciate how the story wraps up with him saying, this is my gift, my curse, melodramatic again. Um, But finally, who am I? I'm Spider-Man. So it's it's it is a satisfying ending to the movie in that it follows that hero's journey up to this point where there needs to be this impetus for the next story and there needs to, he can't completely walk away with everything that he wants because of what it means to be this hero and to have this uh sacrificial uh burden that he has. Um so I like that and of course the movie also then ends with that sequence of him swinging which is you know pretty iconic so so yeah Yeah. that's it that's her that's spider-man 2002 yeah and you know as tough as it was for me to get through this movie twice i'm glad i did because it gave me a lot of perspective very much so on both movies that came before the movies that come after you gave me a lot of perspective on some things that i didn't give the movie credit for because i couldn't see past so many of the problems. So I very much appreciate that. And I just flat out had a blast doing this with you. Yeah, me too. It was so fun to talk to you about this. I I always listening to your show, The Marvelous Madams, I always appreciate your sense of humor and the way that you just tell it like it is with some of these characters <laughs> and their choices and how how dumb some of them can be. And I really appreciate that. So I, similarly, I feel like talking with you about it uh, has been really eye-opening to get another lens into into this movie and to take off some of my nostalgia glasses a little bit too. So mm-hmm. it's been a good balance and I, I'm really glad that we had this opportunity to, to dig into it. Yeah, so thank you everyone for joining us today. I will be back next week uh, with more special guests to cover Sam Raimi's next superhero installment, Spider-Man 2. And TK, what do you have coming up? I'm very much looking forward to listening to that over on your podcast. And here at There Was an Idea, you can look forward to my episode on my top 20 movies of 2021. And shortly after that, a Hawkeye series retrospective. Ooh, that sounds like fun. I love top 10s. I love uh, year-end stuff. I'm definitely going to tune in for that one, for sure. Awesome. Thank you. And this has been a blast working with you. And thank you again, as always, to our listeners as well. Yeah, so you can find uh, Amy and I, The Marvelous Madams, on Twitter and Instagram, at Marvel Madams. And check out our website, uh, themarvelousmadams.com, where, as always, Infinity Stones are a girl's best friend. I don't think I've ever told you how much I really like that line. That's fantastic. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can follow the podcast at anidea underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter. As always, artwork by Brooke Pender, who you can follow on Instagram at D-E-L-T-A dot M-U-S-H. And music by Demeter Salvia, who you can find on Bandcamp and SoundCloud. Thank you for listening and stay tuned next week for a bonus episode in which I share my top 20 films of 2021, not just MCU films. I'm really excited to branch out a little bit and discuss some of my other favorites. And coming up after that, a Hawkeye series retrospective, as well as a deep dive analysis episode on Eternals later this month.